If you haven't turned there yet, turn to Matthew 18, 21 through 25. My name's Scott Sutton, and uh, I'm excited to dig into this parable with you all this morning. Before we start, I want a show of hands. Who here has been punched in the face before? I'm not going to lie, that, that was like, like the first service, it was overwhelming. They were like, oh yeah, totally been punched in the face. It's weird. So, uh, or slapped. The show of hands, don't be, everybody has a testimony. This is a safe place. Show of okay. All right, there's this visceral thing that happens when someone hits you like that. Like your flesh just goes into action. You don't have to think, what does my flesh want to do right now? The flesh just responds. It is a visceral response when we are wronged in that way. So I'll try to get the rest of the room. Who here has been headbutted by a baby? Or a, to- or a toddler, even worse, right? So like, like, it's your little bundle of joy, and you love them, and then they buck, and they hit you right in the nose, and the tears just involuntary come, because they'll hit you right there. And like, your, your flesh responds, like, I have five kids, so it, it's happened to me a few times, and my first thought is usually, I'm going to headbutt my baby right back. I'm going to... Ne- you, that hurts so bad. I never did that, but that's that thing I want us to kind of get in touch with, that visceral fleshly response that comes when we're wrong. The thing, we don't even have to think about it, we just respond. So today our text is on forgiveness. Forgiveness is important because we sin against each other all the time. It's a regular thing that we experience, and I think that when we're sinned against, in a similar way as getting you know, head-butted by a baby, there is a visceral and a fleshly response that comes. And that visceral and that fleshly response has to be informed by something. It has to be informed by God's design for his people if you proclaim to be his people. So we're going to dive into the text. And as we do so, uh, Howard Hendricks wrote a book called Living by the Book. And it's helped me probably more than anything on how to just study the, the Bible. And he says the statement, you have to ask what the scripture says before you ask, what does it say to me? And it's even more so important um, as we consider a parable today. We really have to dive into the parable and understand first what it says. So sort of our, our outline for the morning is going to be, we're going to make five observations of the text that we, we really have to understand what's going on. And then we'll consider four applications, the part of where we say, what does it say to me? Uh, if you're familiar with Matthew 18, if you've been here through this series, Matthew 18 is intensely relational. It's also just intense. Like someone said this morning after the first sermon, like I'm excited about Matthew 19. There is a heaviness about Matthew 18. And, and, And it is intensely relational. What we find is that God really cares about how we relate to one another. It's very important to him. It's one of the most significant ways that we are designed as a church, as a people for, of his possession, to shine really brightly in a very dark and a very divided world. I mean, just take a minute to consider the culture you live in. Is it a forgiving culture or is it more of like a cancel culture? Do we keep short accounts with one another or do we dwell on wrongs? Do you find that people are more patient or less patient? So, when we're talking about forgiveness, I want you all to see it in the context of the culture we live in that is really not very forgiving. So this week we're going to learn that, well last week we learned in talking about church discipline that we're not allowed to respond to sin however we want to respond to sin, right? 
When someone sins against you, you don't just get to decide. Scripture guides you in that. It says if your brother sins against you, you go to them and you tell them their fault. And if they listen, you have won them back. The goal is, is reconciliation and keeping short accounts. You're not allowed to do whatever you want when people sin. And in a like manner this week, we're not allowed to respond however we want when people repent. And that's what we're going to be considering in this parable. So look with me at verse 21 and let's begin to unpack it. There's a lot of verses here and I'm going to tell you up front, it's pretty heavy. So let's do that work and let's unpack the parable so that we can understand what it means for us. Verse 21 says this, then Peter came up and said to him, he said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I think it's humorous if it's someone asks Jesus a question and goes, goes ahead and answers it for Jesus, right? This is a humorous moment, and I think what happens with Peter is I think he's thinking back to the verses we looked at last week, where Jesus has just said to his group, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And I think Peter's sitting there, I mean, just picture him over to the side, kind of wrestling, he's kind of thinking, like, okay, I go to my brother and I tell him the fault, but like, how many times? Do I do that? Like how many times do I have to go to my brother and then we do this thing and I forgive him? Like how many times? And then, and he knows the Jewish culture. So the Jewish culture, the, the rule is kind of three. In a Jewish culture, you do it three times and that's, that's sufficient for you to have exercised the forgiveness that would be expected in a, in a situation. And so I think Peter, he's probably thinking, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to double it and I'm going to add one. And then I'm going to open my mouth. So his, I, I would imagine that his chest was out a little bit like, Lord, how many times do we forgive? Like seven, thinking he figured it out because he went so, he went high. He went really high. And he probably felt really good about that. And so the first observation this morning, just to make sure we're really clear on what we're reading, is number one, Jesus is answering the question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? That's, that's what we're talking about this morning. Peter's question, Jesus is answering it. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And to be clear, forgiveness defined, when he says, and I forgive him, that word, when you look it up, it is to let go, to let alone, to let it be, to not discuss it, to stop talking about it, and to give up a debt. When we sin against one another, there's a debt that's created. And it's the same with our Lord. And so when forgiveness happens, he's saying, how many times do, does my brother sin against me? And I say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up that debt. How many times does my brother sin against me? And I say, okay, I, I'm going to let that go and I'm going to just cover it because you, you said you weren't going to do it again even though you did it one time, two times, three times, four times, and who knows how many. And then look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of your translations might say 70 times seven. Over in Luke 17, three through four, it says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, you rebuke him, but if he repents, you forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the same day, just picture what that feels like. The same thing, you're going to say that about me, you're going to do that to me seven times, seven times the same day. And if he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. 
So observation number two is that Jesus' answer to Peter's question is you're never allowed to withhold forgiveness. Is that weighty this morning? You're never allowed to withhold forgiveness. For the legalists in the room, if you're like, no, he said 77. It's it's hyperbole. Jesus is saying there's no limit. Like you're not sitting there going, okay, you're at 38. You're getting close. You're running. You're running thin. No, the point is Jesus' answer to that question, Lord, how often will I for like, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus' answer is, you're never allowed to withhold forgiveness. Now, if you're thinking that seems a little surprising, that seems extreme. You're not alone. Remember, in the Jewish culture, the the people who were sitting around him, it was customary to extend forgiveness three times. So for everybody in that moment, you can probably identify him because identify with him for everyone in that moment who is listening, to go from three to actually there is no limit is a bit shocking. Even as you're sitting here, you're you're probably thinking, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? Is Is there a limit when it's this? And there's no limit to forgiveness for those who have been forgiven. It would have been shocking. I think that probably Jesus perceives in this moment that that's a heavy thing to hear. And so what Jesus does is he moves into utilizing a parable to unpack it. He utilizes a parable to kind of just show the why and the how of this unlimited forgiveness. And it's important, and I think it's really important for us, because honestly, as I was preparing the sermon, it's not the kind of sermon where, like, hey, you have to forgive every time. Like, it's not the kind of sermon where I think we're like, oh, I like that. I like that. I like to not hold on to any grudges, to not um, let be anger, angry with my, in my sin, to, to not, uh, I like to, I love forgiving. Like, I think there's something that says, but what about this and what about that? So I think this parable is just as important for us to unpack and to understand. So look at verse 23. He's just made this massive statement about this unlimited forgiveness. And then verse 23 says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus is there ushering in, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you might be thinking, what is a talent? So let me explain. We, we, like the numbers are actually really important here. We've dedicated a whole slide to it this morning. So 10,000 talents, if you tr- translate that to today's money, that's about $6 billion. Another show of hands. Anyone ever been $6 billion in debt? Show of hands. Okay, no. Good. Fantastic. That's good because that's an insurmountable debt. Six billion dollars is what this joker has. That means his master had six billion dollars. He took that six billion dollars from his master, used it, can't pay it back, and now it's time to pay the bills. The account has become due. So this is an insurmountable debt. And since he could not pay, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. That was customary at this time. If there's a significant debt that cannot be paid, you're going to be sold and you'll repay it. And your wife and your children and all your possessions will be sold. So this is an awful moment for this guy in this parable. 
And it says in verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him. Have, he, it's a moment of ruin and he says, please have patience on me and I will pay you everything. He just made a promise he cannot keep. But he's desperate. I will pay you everything. Just have some patience with me. And look at the next verse. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Does anybody owe you money right now? I mean, that's not the point of the sermon. I'm just wanting you to, like, feel that for a minute. Six billion dollars. He pled for mercy. You know what? Forgiven. Like, think about the debt you have. How would you feel if someone was like, oh, you're asking for mercy? Okay, forgiven. That, that just happened in verse 27. And then in verse 28 it says, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And you might be thinking, what is a denarii? And again, we go to our slide, a hundred denarii today is, is still a large amount. It's about $12,000. But are we really clear that those are very different amounts? Like, which is bigger, $6 billion or $12,000? Six billion. Yes, yes, fantastic. Yeah, it, that's way bigger. Like, way bigger. So we have very different debts and we have very different responses to those debts. So he went out and he found one fellow who owed him $12,000. He just walked out of this meeting where he was forgiven $6 billion, and it doesn't even look like much time passed. It says he went out and he's like, oh, you owe me some money. Can you imagine this moment? Like, what would you be thinking about that guy, right? What would you be, would you be judging him a little bit? Like, whoa, 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 are you, you got a problem with this guy over here? And he, there, he sees someone who owes him 100 denarii, about $12,000. He was just forgiven six bill. When that servant went out, he found one of fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him. Have you ever seen someone being choked? You don't choke anybody in an unviolent manner, right? Choking him, saying, pay what you owe. Can y'all, like, import your senses? This is crazy. Leave the meeting. You owe me money, and now we're violently choking someone who owes him a much smaller amount. So his fellow servant, a fellow servant, in verse 29, fell down and pleaded with him. The same way he had just done. Fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. This guy actually may have been able to pay him as opposed to him being able to pay his. He says, have patience with me, and, and I will pay you. And in verse 30, the unforgiving servant, he refused, and he went, and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants, like people are watching, when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. He was just choking that guy for 12 grand. Like they were greatly distressed, understandably. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, listen to what his master says. You wicked servant. I forgave you all of that debt. All six 
billion dollars. Because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? It's pretty easy to marvel at the wickedness of that servant, right? Like it's, it's easy to look at that guy and be like, what a jerk. Like he needs to get punched in the face. He's a bad dude. Like it's easy to hate that guy. It's easy to look at this and just be like, how, how dare he? But the key to understanding this text is not found in marveling at the wickedness of the servant. The key to understanding the text is found in marveling in the lavish forgiveness of the master. We can't miss that as we're studying through this, this text. Our observation, our third observation for the morning is that the master's forgiveness was lavish. Notice he didn't simply give the servant more time to repay his debt. The master didn't say to the servant, you know what, I get it, $6 billion is a lot, it's been a tough month, I'm going to extend you 30 days. He didn't say, you know what, I'm going to take your debt, I'm going to... I'll forgive 25%. That's, bill, that's over a billion dollars. I'm not real great at math on the fly, but I think that's over a billion dollars. He didn't do that. It says that he, he came to settle accounts because he can settle accounts whenever he pleases. And it says that upon finding that debt of his servant, he heard the servant's plea and the master forgave him. He said, I'm not going to count that debt as your debt anymore. It is the most lavish, over-the-top, crazy forgiveness that, is that this guy's experiencing. And I don't want us to miss it. His wife was spared. His children were spared. His belongings were spared. His home was spared. That is lavish forgiveness. But look what happens in verse 32. It says, Then the master summoned him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And then he says this, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the, to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Now what, a, what a turn of events, right? Like, are y'all following this story like, that's, that, that is a lot that happened in that afternoon, right? Like, that's a whole lot. Our fourth observation this morning in those verses is revealed that the master's expectation was that his servant would have mercy on his fellow servants. That's what we're seeing in the parable. The master's forgiveness came with expectations, that's what it says. Before we ask what it says to us, the master's forgiveness. He says, shouldn't you have extended mercy the way I extended mercy? The master's expectation in verse 33 is he says, should you not have shown mercy as I showed you, shows that his expectation was that his servant who was forgiven should have laid down the role of punisher. His servant should have laid down the role of judge. He's no longer punisher. He's no longer judge he should have had mercy. So there was an expectation that went with the forgiveness that he received. And the final observation, the heartbreaking, heavy warning for us this morning, is the unforgiving servant was met by an unforgiving master. Y'all see that? There was a shift. And this unforgiving servant was met by an unforgiving master. Master. 
Because of his unforgiveness, the debt that would have been forgiven will now be his responsibility to pay back in full. And it's a really heartbreaking story, right? Because the, it was $6 billion. So the debt is too large for him to pay back. So he had this forgiveness, he showed unforgiveness, and now the result is that forgiveness is not there. And in fact, um, you, you prove you didn't have it, you didn't understand it, you didn't comprehend it, and now that $6 billion debt is required of you. I'm calling your account now. Major, major heartache. I think what we're seeing here, and I hope we can all agree, is unforgiveness ruined his life. That's what we're seeing in the parable. What did it mean for him? He lost his wife. He lost his children. He lost his belongings. He lost his freedom. That was the cost of the unforgiveness that he showed. Unforgiveness ruined his life. That's what we see in this parable that Jesus is using to answer Peter's question. In verse 35, Jesus helps to make the transition for us from saying, okay, what does it say to what does it say to us? And look at verse 35 with me. Soberly and in the most understanding way that you can, listen to Jesus' words. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I don't know if it gets any heavier than that. This warning is extremely grave. It is extremely serious. So also my Father, my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter and those listening when they said, how many times do we forgive? He says, every time. And if you don't, my Father does not forgive you. Do you feel the weight of that this morning? This is all about the gospel. We have to see this as gospel people who know the gospel story and understand the debt that we have because of our sin. The gospel can be understood in like creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. God created you to be an image bearer. Our God he, he introduces himself as being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we are to be image bearers who are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He created us that way. But Adam and Eve, we've read those, the story, we fall into sin because we decide we want to play the role of God. Punisher, judge. That's the fall and it creates a debt with us that we cannot repay our God. Part of the truth of the gospel is that like the $6 billion debt of this unforgiving servant, your debt to God is insurmountable. You cannot pay that debt. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot figure out enough good deeds or even enough forgiving of other people to get into heaven and to, to earn the favor of your God. The gospel means you are bankrupt. You are lost. You have no hope if not for something happening outside of you. So we have creation, we have fall, and then we have redemption. If I just ended the sermon on like, yep, if you don't forgive, you go to hell. Let's pray. That's not real encouraging, right? The warning is still heavy, but what I want us to see with that warning is the beautiful part of the gospel where there's redemption. 
Our God is a, is a merciful God. He's not like this reluctant judge who's saying, you know what? Y'all are awful. I, I'm going to bless you anyway. He, he loves us, church. Like, I can't overexpress the lavishness of the forgiveness that we've received. In Christ, God, um, he pours out his wrath on his own son for you. That's called propitiation. It's a wrath absorber. So God, his wrath is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Which means in our unrighteous living, God's not just sort of like haphazardly, capriciously angry sometimes. His anger is towards unrighteousness because it suppresses the truth. And all of us are unrighteous. Every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and the wages of sin is death. It is death. That's what you should get paid for what you have done. And rather than dying, our Lord pours out his wrath on his son on the cross. And so redemption is offered in just the most lavish way possible. Like I can't overexpress the lavishness of our master toward us in Christ. Our only hope for forgiveness of our sins is if Christ pays our debt for us. There's no hope outside of that. We don't graduate from the gospel as we get older. We have to go back to it over and over again. There is zero hope for us for the forgiveness of our sins if Christ does not pay the debt for us. When we place our faith in Christ, we receive forgiveness. And it is lavish. It exceeds $6 billion dollars. That's chump change compared to the way we have been lavishly forgiven by our God. God counts his son's righteousness as ours, and by faith we enter his kingdom. The gospel is good news to those who receive our Lord. And one day, Jesus is going to return to settle accounts. This is a heavy text One day Jesus will return to settle accounts and there's no amount of good deeds or even forgiving that can make a man earn salvation. We cannot earn it. We are, we are ruined in our sin. You cannot earn your way into eternal blessing. However, the way we live our lives is actually proof of faithfulness or proof of faithlessness. And the way you forgive has everything to do with that. You're not earning anything when you forgive others. You're proving that you, you understand how much you've been forgiven. That's the core of this text. To be more specific to today's text and our first application point of the morning is the forgiveness we give will prove the forgiveness we have received. It's proof. Do you see the settling of accounts by our God? The forgiveness we give will prove the forgiveness we have received. Forgiveness transforms us. It transforms us from being bitter grudge holders to being forgivers. And so it's a proof. You're not earning anything in your forgiving. It's a proof of having been forgiven. Our Lord will one day come to settle accounts, and our only hope to hear those words Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Our only hope of hearing those words will be if Christ has paid our debt. 
if Christ's righteousness is counted as ours. Proof of, of that having happened through faith is that we have a forgiving heart. Or to say it another way, the words, well done, good and faithful servant, will be spoken to people who have forgiving hearts because they've been forgiven. Our second application point for the morning is the flip side of that. An unforgiving servant will be met by an unforgiving master. This is heavy. Hear the warning. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think it's real clear that Jesus does not want you to take the unforgiveness that you have towards your brother lightly. He's practically screaming for you to repent and to run to him and to let him handle that for you. Because the unforgiving servant is met by an unforgiving master. The one in the parable was turned over to the jailers, which is translated torturers in the original language. So for us, that, that's an eternal reality if we are not in Christ. Proven by our unforgiveness toward other people, according to the text today. To be turned over to the jailers, to the torturers, for us is to be cast into the eternal prison of being eternally separated from God for an eternal punishment. Those are the stakes this morning. And this happens if you have an unforgiving heart. Jesus used a whole lot of verses here to draw that out. An unforgiving heart is proof that our faith is not solely in God. It's in ourselves. We trust ourselves to be judged. We trust ourselves to be the punishers. An unforgiving heart is that we're relying on ourselves. An unforgiving heart is proof that we have not even begun to understand the lavish forgiveness of our God. The third application point, which kind of, I guess, synthesizes this and just makes practical sense, is nobody has to earn your forgiveness. Nobody has to earn your forgiveness. Nobody. Like, think about that. Not your wife. Not your husband, not your children, not your friends, not your coworkers, not the person who cut you off in traffic, not the person who cussed you, not even your enemies. For those who are in this amazingly, lavishly blessed state of being forgiven by the King of kings and Lord of lords, for you, no one has to earn your forgiveness. Nobody. Now I want to make a note here. Every time I've discussed this passage with anybody, there's, there's like multiple moments like, but what about, um, hold on, there was a thing, oh, wait a minute. And so I want to, I want to look at one of those right now. I'm going, to, I, I'm going to make a confession and I want to see, do you guys identify with this confession? I never feel more justified in my sin than when someone sins against me and is unrepentant. Let me say it again. I personally, in my wicked heart, in the flesh that I struggle with every day, never feel more justified in my sin than when somebody else sins against me and is unrepentant. It's like there's something about their unrepentance that's like, you know what, I'm not unrepentant either. Now I'm angry. 
Now I'm bitter. Now I'm going to hold a grudge. Now I'm going to call everybody I can and talk about what you did. And I feel so justified in my sin when someone has sinned against me and they're not repentant. See, today's text is like explaining the fullest experience of forgiveness, right? That's what we're seeing in this parable. Where someone sins against you, you move toward them the way that your heavenly father has moved towards you. They repent and you forgive. Wouldn't it be great if that happened every time? Wouldn't it be great if we stopped sinning against each other, right? That's the recreation part of the gospel. There will be a time when after the Lord comes back, there won't be a need, a need for forgiveness because there will be no sin. Sin will be eradicated. But between now and then, this is what we got. The fullest experience is sin, rebuke, repentance, forgiveness. But that's not always how it happens. Remember, we're saying nobody has to earn your forgiveness. And in those moments where someone sins against us and then they don't repent, that is when I'm most inclined to try to make someone earn my forgiveness. And it's not okay. There are other times when perhaps someone doesn't believe that they've sinned against you. Or they realize, or they don't even realize that they've sinned against you. You're carrying it, but they don't, there's no repentance because either they don't believe it or they don't realize it. Or worse, there's times where people just simply don't care that they've sinned against you. Like you live in a world where that's going to happen a lot. There, there are moments where people will sin against you and they don't care. There, there is no repentance. So what do we do in this moment? I bring this up. Because there is no doubt that some are sitting in this room right now who have been sinned against in grievous ways. Wicked, awful ways. Some of us are carrying some darkness around that, it, that is heartbreaking and overwhelming. And the last thing that I want would be for you to hear this text and think that somehow God doesn't care about that hurt. About, like, is Jesus being flippant and just saying, well, just forgive. Because we've been sinned against, and you might be thinking, is this passage making light of my hurt because I'm just supposed to forgive? What about justice? And I think that we have, I'm just going to share two pieces of scripture with you that are really fitting for us to consider when we're sinned against, but there is no repentance from our offender. And I think in these scriptures what we find is rather than a uh, a lack of compassion from our Lord for our hurt, we find significant compassion from our Lord. In 1 Peter 3, 9, it says, do not repay evil for evil. We don't return sin for sin. Do not repay reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. Bless. That's, that's not what I would expect to be the word filled in there. When you are horribly wronged, our Lord lovingly says, so in that moment you bless others. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. The inheritance that awaits is so utterly worth giving that debt up. God is compassionate when he tells you that. He's not taking it lightly because all accounts will be called to account. 1 Peter 4.19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, because we will suffer according to God's will, it's not if we suffer, it's when we suffer. It says for those who do that, suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We, so when we're sinned against and there's no repentance from someone else, 
We do good. We pray for our enemies. We bless those who persecute us. We, we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We count others, even those who sin against us, as more significant than ourselves. How in the world can that be the case? It's because your God has loving compassion on you. Later in 1 Peter it says, we entrust ourselves, our souls, as we're doing these things, to God who judges justly. He is a good, just judge. You are not designed to carry the weight of unforgiveness. Your designer, your Lord, loves you and shows compassion on you. So when he says, you forgive, even if they just have kept sinning against you, if it's happened you know, multiple, many, many times over and over, if it's been this just, just an awful pattern, you can forgive because uh, he says, as my child, I love you, and you're not designed to carry unforgiveness. You'll have, your joy in this mess will come when you bless other people when you're able to kind of quietly move forward because of the goodness of your God. And it's not that, that we don't draw dark things out of the light. It's just your God says you can't carry that unforgiveness. It's not your, it's not your, your role. He's a good God who allows us to come to him, let our requests be made known, and, and empty that burden and give it to him. He is so incredibly gracious to us. I think just the final application point. As we enter into it, I, just, I want to encourage you, unforgiveness will never bring joy. That's a lie we believe. We believe, you know what, if I hold on to this, if I let bitterness fester, I, man, I just, I can't let this go. It, that's, that doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring peace that exceeds understanding. It'll ruin you. I think that's what we're learning from the parable this morning. Unforgiveness will ruin you. And it is the lavish forgiveness of our Father that allows us to be forgiving Whenever forgiveness is needed, we can suffer wrong and injustice from our fellow servants because we have been treated with such tender mercy from our master. I do not perceive that that's something that's just going to settle in. These are, these are things we have to go and think over, and the Lord gives us understanding. We can suffer wrong and injustice in this world from the hands of our fellow servants because we have been treated with such tender lavish mercy from our master. Let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. You have shown us such lavish mercy that in a text that I just confess in front of everybody is very hard and it's very difficult to wrap our heads and our hearts around. I'm thankful that your mercy overcomes even that. Lord, I pray for hard conversations after this sermon. I pray that we would do the work of really trying to apply what you have revealed in this parable of the unforgiving servants. Ultimately, that we would not be unforgiving servants. That we would, like, like Peter and like the others, would receive your answer of you're never allowed to withhold forgiveness. And I pray that we wouldn't, in our faith, my prayer is that we wouldn't see that as a loss but that we would see it as something that's gained, knowing that we are awaiting an eternal inheritance because you have so lovingly shown mercy to us. Lord, we love you. Help us to love others the way you have loved us. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.